the agency would clear out for lunch, right? Like that's when everyone's going off to wheel and deal and have their lunch meetings. And so by that point, I'd say half of those uh, issues I delivered in the morning were in the recycling bin. So I could just grab one and, and read through it. And I learned a lot about the industry at that time, but I also learned how to read them critically. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. So what's new with you? I welcome back two past guests to talk about their latest projects. First, Ben Modell, who has a Raymond Griffith Kickstarter to name just one new thing he's up to. Then Eric Hoyt, who put the back issues of the Media History Digital Library to use in his new book, Inkstained Hollywood. Put your ink-stained fingers to use by subscribing to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And if you feel the urge, we'd love a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. It's been six whole months since we last talked to most frequent guest Ben Modell, who has so many things going on as usual, including a new Kickstarter you can be part of now. Because as he says, if you think somebody should put it out, here's your chance to be the somebody. Let's check in with him. I know you've got a lot of projects and I want to talk about all of them because uh, you're such an overachiever, but... Uh, First, you know, I mean, I think one of the things I, I admire is that you're on top of the changes in technology that allow you to reach the market in new ways. And one of those is that you can now do Blu-rays. So tell me about uh, doing Blu-rays. I'd always wanted to do Blu-ray. I wanted to make things available on Blu-ray. But the tricky part for the longest time was that you had to replicate as opposed to duplicate. And that means pressing copies and not burning them. And while DVDRs have always, for the longest time, been an acceptable format for most people, there are some people who won't touch anything that's been burnt, and that's fine. The uh, the feasibility and technical reliability of, of burnt Blu-rays was uh, not uh, either not as reliable or as accepted for a very long time. The trick with pressed discs, uh, especially with Blu-ray, is that you must make a minimum of, of a thousand. And this is why I use the manufacturer-on-demand uh, production model for the DVDs, because goodness knows the things that I release are never going to sell a thousand pieces. And uh, it took years to sell off all the copies of 
When Nighthood Was in Flower, which was a pressed release on DVD and Blu-ray. And even, uh, it, it was just very complicated getting an item up on Amazon. And then I had to take care of making sure that copies were at their warehouse. And it, it it's something I didn't have time for. So what was great was two things happened. One was in the last uh, two, three years, the manufacturer on demand uh, uh, company that I've been working with, uh, Alliance Entertainment, uh, it's one of the two or three main ones. Is I think Vaughn Communications is another one. But I've been working with Alliance for the last five or six years, and it's been great. They installed new equipment and tested it and tested it and tested it. And um, once it was 100% ready to go, uh, I, I just needed to find a way to author discs. And authoring is the way on a computer you take all the disparate uh, digital media elements, sound, video, titles, menus, uh, and, and weave it all together so that, uh, you know, when you push a button, it, it, it'll jump to this part or that part or that sort of thing. That's what authoring is. And just getting getting my hands on software that allowed you to author Blu-rays, because it's not the same, apparently, as authoring DVDs. I got a lot of help on that from Eric Grayson and, and as well as from Steve Stanchfield. And so this was uh, because there are many people who uh, will only buy things on Blu-ray and also, most people, I think, now have Blu-ray players and 16.9 televisions or whatever you call them. It, it was, it was a, a piece of the classic film fandom I wanted to make sure I was able to reach. And so releasing things on Blu-ray now uh, uh, as uh, duplicated as Blu-ray R's uh, instead of pressing a thousand and hoping for the best uh is is uh, enabling me and enabling well it's enabling me to make the stuff available for fans who prefer that format and it allows those fans who prefer that format to buy in that format and so you're going to go back and redo some of your past ones that's the idea. As soon as I get the cloning machine working, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, once Radio Shack closed all their stores, it's hard to get parts. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's the idea. Uh, there are uh, some some of the releases where we were working in th from 35-millimeter 35, 35 elements scanned in HD or 2K, and uh, as good as they look on DVD, there are people who have Blu-ray players and large televisions or large screen de devices uh, for whom it would uh, make a difference to be able to buy something or even to rebuy it in Blu-ray. So that's the dream. And we'll see, we'll see how that, how that goes. Now, what, uh, what are the limitations of what it would be worth to do that with? Cause I know some of your accidentally lost things come from, you know, pretty amateur formats or prints, you know, the sole surviving print is kind of beat up. Yeah. You, well, to... it's, it's funny that, you know, as far as uh, th that sort of thing, my rule of thumb might be, oh, well, uh, only if it's something we mastered from 35 millimeter. On the other hand, some of the stuff on accidentally preserved are from original Kodoscope or show at home titles. And 
I remember the first or second disc I released, there were questions. Are you, are you going to put this out on Blu-ray? And I thought, it's a 16 mil. I mean, how good is 16 millimeter going to look, uh, <laughs> you know, in HD as opposed to standard def? But if there's time and the ability to do it, uh, like I said, there I'm, I've also encountered people who I would tell them about what, what my line of DVDs is, and then they say... Oh, well, I don't buy anything on DVD. So uh, that's fine. That, that That is totally fine. So uh, I might consider with some of the titles. And, and then there are some things like the Marcel Perez discs where there's a mix. Yeah. You know, you have stuff on 35 and you have stuff on 16. But uh, the stuff from 35 will look even better. Uh, so I, I'm not really sure. It, it, it's... It's really just a matter of of time and focus, and which is something that I I feel like I have more of than I did last year. And and again, COVID knocked. Uh, I don't know about you, but it just was so much harder to concentrate on on anything the last couple of years. You know, in 2021, I didn't do a Kickstarter at all, and it took me all all, all the focus I had left uh, to get the Horton set finished and and out and so this year um we have a bunch of things in the hopper and uh we'll, we'll see uh, i don't want to promise anything and then have to backpedal uh every month uh, but I, the, the dream again is to go back and find pieces from the back catalog and re reissue them you know another dream that we we were working on is to make things available for on video on demand for folks who just won't deal with something on on a disc although i i'm i'm definitely dedicated to putting things on a phys, physical media uh, i'm discovering there's a huge swath of fans in their 20s and 30s who are nuts for physical media who have huge collections and really like it and for me uh what you lose in uh clicking on a stream is this ceremony you're right. <laughs> I really, I really think that there is something to that. It's not like with vinyl. It's not just oh, the sound is warmer, but there is something to walking to the turntable, opening, you know, the, you know, pulling the the vinyl out of the sleeve, the smell of the vinyl. You put it on the turntable. You put your your dust thing, whatever, and then you put the the the, the tone arm down, and then you step back, and it plays. Uh, there, there, there's in the same way that I wanted from day one with the silent comedy watch party, not to have me in a, in a corner screen, but to show me play and bring people up into the world of the film slowly, uh, and then back out at the end. There, there's something about that, that there, you know, even if you hate looking at that FBI screen that pops up when you put a disc <laughs> in, you walk over, you see the cover, you open it up. Ah, there's the disc art, and you put it in the tray. You hit a button. You step back. There's the dun, 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 don't don't copy this, and then you go to that menu, uh, and it welcomes you into the film like walking into a movie palace. And I right. think that's important when you watch something on a stream. It's like going to a Zoom meeting. Bang, you're in. And then as soon as it's over, you're out. And and you only uh, watch it as long as something else doesn't seem more interesting. Right. And and when you start a stream, it's 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 um, yeah, it's so sudden that uh, you know, you're still wandering around, getting something to drink, sitting, settling into your chair. 
setting the lights. Oh, should I get this? Oh, wait, what's the, you know, and uh, I, I really do think that a slow fade and a slow dissolve in um, is is a nice way to welcome yourself into a uh, into a screen viewing experience. Yeah, I you know one thing I've definitely noticed is that if it's something I really want to make myself pay attention to, I make someone else watch it with me. You know, I, I, that's a good idea. I like con my son into watching, you know, this Tarkovsky film or whatever it is. Oh, that's a big con. (laughs) Yeah. But because I'm not, I'm not going to be tempted to just go, you know, check what's, you know, what's on Netflix too, or, you know, what's, you right. know, because there's somebody with you watching, so yeah, you you, you, you don't want to, to tune out. Yes, to not yeah, be it's a more ditz. of a and it's more of a commitment to to the entertainment you're you're watching. So I think that's a great idea. Uh, I was uh, talking to somebody a month or so ago who said they with especially with the silent film, he turns out the lights. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Because you're really so that you you know you 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 tune in, and this is something that uh, my students watched everything. In class last year, even though I live streamed and live accompanied everything, they were still watching it in their lap. And it was the first time I saw comments in the the final essays they were writing and sending in that they said, yeah, there are a few films that didn't really grab me. Uh, and that was new. And I think it's, you know, usually at Wesleyan, we see everything on a very large screen uh, with live piano accompaniment. And I think that makes a difference, but there are people who have cut the cord and, and won't, you know, they don't want to do that. And so we're, we're looking into the feasibility of, of putting things up on video on demand for the, for the fans who, who you do that. Yeah. I think it's important to, you know, to still be a movie and not just be content, you know, (laughs) you preserve those, those old rituals of movie going for as long as they'll last at this point. Yeah, there's a great if you can. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. Marty Scorsese's um, Robert Osborne acceptance speech uh, at the TCM festival. He taught he talks about content, the word content, and has some has a very nice rant about it. So uh, look that up. It's 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 really uh, it's really excellent. Well, let's talk about your latest content, Ben. Uh, which is you've got a new Kickstarter for uh, two films uh, with Raymond Griffith. Tell us who Gr- Raymond Griffith is. Raymond Griffith. Oh my goodness! If you you've seen his films, you already know uh, how great he is. And uh, Raymond Griffith had a starring career in features for Paramount from 1925 to 1927. He made at least ten feature films after spending a few years supporting other stars and practically stealing the picture from them. <laughs> uh, 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 and then prior to that, uh, working as a writer, he wrote films for Douglas MacLean. Uh, and then before that, he, you know, like everybody, got his start at Keystone. And like Charlie Chase, was uh, somebody whose uh, demeanor and persona and uh, looks didn't really fit in with the crazy slapdash baggy pants and mustache thing happening at, at Keystone, but he's a great, uh, he was a good performer and a great gag writer. And like Chase, w- once a uh, silent film and silent film comedy settled into a, a more, uh, I don't know, genteel isn't the right word, but, but less 
dr- drawn from the music hall and vaudeville sort of personas, um, this sort of dapper uh, American Max Linder sort of persona of his uh, emerged uh, in films he was making uh, in the early 20s. And he was always this guy uh, in a you know, tidy little mustache and uh, usually in a tuxedo and, and top hat. And after supporting B.B. Daniels and other other folks in, in a number of features that were successful, he got moved into his own starring series. Half of his films at least are missing. Um, but his rep, his reputation and renown was resurrected by Walter Kerr in a chapter in The Silent Clowns called The Unexpected Raymond Griffith. And I think between him and William K. Everson, his films and his reputation at least got a a, a bit of a jump start in the 60s and 70s. Um, Yeah, no, when I was doing, you know, 16 millimeter programming, uh, Hands Up was the one that was fairly easy easy to come by, which meant that everybody regarded it as his best film. Um, it was the it was so the only because the only see. one exactly yeah uh, hands up because it's that moment it, it was preserved and uh, their their thirty five millimeter preservation uh, at, from MoMA has always been available as part of their sixteen millimeter circulating catalog, uh, catalog so it was it was eminently rentable um, so uh, so it's it's been shown and there's just something about his persona that's. Uh, yeah, I always kind of thought of him like if William Powell in Silent Days, I mean, he mostly played villains, but if he had played kind of a genteel comedian, you yes. know, there's something like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's sort of like if the William Powell sound era persona without right. the white cracks. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that I mean, I really do think that uh, because Linder's just remained a little too French to really cross over into really successful films and he had other problems, but it's the same kind of persona, this middle-class guy in a tuxedo going through uh, funny situations. Um, I, I think that it, it, Raymond Griffith is ripe for rediscovery. And so what are you rediscovering there, Ben? Well, we're, we're rediscovering two of his feature films that are at the library of Congress. Uh, you'd be surprised from 1926 and Paths to Paradise from 1925. And uh, the reason I've chosen these films, well, there's, like I said, there's only a few of them of his features that that survive. These two, along with Hands Up and uh, one of his earlier starring features of The Nightclub, which only survives in 16 millimeter. But these are the Raymond Griffith films that have been preserved by the Library of Congress. And I, because I have a co-branding arrangement with the library, uh, and it's a lot easier to access uh, films from the Library of Congress. Those are the two titles. And this is why, as many, many people are posting on Night Trader, what about Hands Up? Well, yeah. it's that moment. It's a different scenario. Right. I'm not saying it's impossible. And it is a film registry title. Um, but this is where we're starting. Well, and it's not like it's been hard to get that gray market copy of Hands Up. So oh, you know, yeah. the, these are more unusual uh, you know, I've never seen You'd Be Surprised. I I used to have a VHS from Grapevine of Paths to Paradise. So, you know, yeah. but, but I'd be happy to see it in a better copy for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think Grapevine probably has all of these out. And I, I know I scored 
I think I scored at least one of one of these uh, for real classic DVD a million years ago. So they're out there, you know, from 16 millimeter collector prints in standard def. But I've seen the scans on these two films and especially Paths to Paradise uh, where the nitrate is tinted, which I didn't know. I'd only seen it in black and white. And uh, so it's, you know, it's just really, really sharp. And if we get enough backers on board, we'll be able to afford doing digital restoration and cleanup on these films. And they really look uh, amazing, like they like, you know, as as they did when they were in original release. Which I should say, you're not that far from that point. Uh, You've you passed the, uh, you know, the number required to actually do the project of course fairly quickly within some number of hours and you are you said what i think 475 backers to get yeah that's 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 the ballpark to 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 make it and i think i think we'll probably make it by the end of the of the the kickstarter right Um, i think that doing something like adding a third feature uh, unless somebody wants to underwrite it would wind up being a a next project right uh, after (laughs) the, the the handful of things uh, that I'm working on for for release this year, and it may take you know what what, what people may not uh, be aware of or understand is that every one of these projects isn't like going to a library and pulling something off the shelf and saying okay and now I'm going to put this out. There's at least several months back that go you know working backwards from right now uh, that that that. It involved with conversations with people and looking at elements and what's available and other people's schedules and getting things scanned. So even if MoMA said to me right now, oh, yes, that's okay for for you to hands up and uh, 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 Paul Rudd has written a check <laughs> for it, you won't have to worry about it. It will still take, you know, it will add, you know, at least half a year to the production timeline sure. to add it. So, now well, I'm um, excited about these two. And they're great. So it go the Kickstarter runs through April second, so there's just time for listeners to get on this. The link will be in the show post, of course. And we're at four hundred and thirty one backers as I look at it right now. So forty four oh, wow. of you. We just yeah. need forty four more to pay for the digital cleanup that will yeah. benefit everybody. So and, and when you make a pledge, you're participating in a way in in helping these films. Uh, become available for not only yourself but uh, hundreds and thousands of other fans to either finally get their hands on or to discover Raymond Griffith. You know what? What I it turns out that I do with uh, the Undercrank Productions releases is to identify and and fill out the landscape of silent film. These are all very fun, successful films from the teens and twenties that everybody went to see while they were waiting for the films made by the people who uh, whose films are released by Criterion and Kino and Flickr Alley. Uh, there were all these other wonderful things. So uh, by participating in the project, you get to be part uh, in, in a way of, uh, you'll see your name in a crawl at the end. This this form of, this uh, workflow, I, I've, uh, I, I don't know if I was the first, I was certainly one of the first people to do this back in the early 2010s. Uh, with you know uh, fan funding through Kickstarter and then the manufacture on demand uh, uh, production uh, is it's it's a way for more things to get out there. It's very easy, and you know this all too well, 
from running nitrate belt, it's so much easier and so much more fun to complain about how the stuff isn't available and why doesn't anybody put this it, and, and I've learned what it takes to put some of these things out. And it's, it's takes a long time. It's not always easy. Um, but, uh, there, there is this workflow that a, a number of other people have discovered, uh, to, to make things that are not, uh, Buster Keaton, uh, uh available, uh, to fans and, and, you know, we're slowly populating the landscape with these films. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's interesting when I read to move to the next star that you've been putting out lately. You know, I read on uh, Nitreville, you know, Ed LaRusso, are you saying, yeah, there really aren't any more Marion Davies films, uh, so I don't know what we're going to do. And it's like, we won! We've got yeah. all the surviving Marion Davies yeah. films out at this point, or they're from someone else, like, you know, Warner Archive putting out The Red Mill or so on. Um, so, you know, it's good news that everything that exists pretty much is, is out now. Um, yeah. so let's talk about, uh, the two you put out Xander the Great, uh, which Ed had ori originally done that you did the score for him, but then you kind of redid that one for Blu-ray mm -hmm. and Beverly of Graustark, which I just got in the mail a couple of days oh, ago. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. You know, first thing. Uh, to keep in mind is that uh, there's just so much about Marion Davies that, that we're learning uh, from all of these projects. And, and when Laura Gabrielle Fowler's biography uh, of Marion comes out later this year, we'll all, we'll find out a lot of great information and a lot of myths will be debunked, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we've gone in, 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 in the last five or six years from, just this this myth and rumor. Oh, uh, Hearst just stuck her in these stuffy costume dramas, and she hated them, and they're not that good. To being able to see pretty much all of them and go, oh, that's not the case. Uh, these films are entertaining. They're fun. They're well made, and she's fantastic. Uh, and that's partially because of two things. One is the preservation and conservation work of the Library of Congress and Marion Davies herself. I mean, these films would not survive had it not been for Marion Davies hanging on to nitrate prints of her films and then giving them to the Library of Congress in the 50s. And some of these prints were struck in the mid-30s, so I don't know the particulars, but I would venture to guess that she or Hearst had prints struck in the 30s of things that they did not have from the original release. So Beverly of Graustark and and I think also Xander, uh, there are original release-tinted nitrate prints in the collection that were saved by Marion and then, then preserved by the Library of Congress. Um, they're both fun and they both mark a, a turning point from the uh, heavily costumed uh, uh, close to two hour uh, uh, films that she was making up till around 1920, up through 1924. Um, some of them are less, uh, you know, costume driven or less dramatic and have more elements of comedy in them. But around 1925, it's uh, Xander's the first picture she makes out on the West Coast. And Beverly of Graustark is the first film uh, that really looks like an MGM studio picture, like Show People and The Passy does. Um, I don't know exactly how much involvement Irving Thalberg had, but this is the, you know, Beverly of Graustark is a comedy. It's not a light, you know, 
It's not a drama with little comic elements the way Xander is. Um, although Xander is more of a hybrid than some of the other er- earlier films. You know, it's got Harry Watson and, 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 and Harry Myers as the comedy relief. So you can't go wrong with that. Um, and, the, the, you know, I, what's been fun about Xander the Great is uh, the reactions that I've, I've been reading from people who've, who've bought it and watched it that uh, they like it better than I did. I'm mean, Not that I didn't like it, but they liked it even more. Uh, I was just, uh, I guess you get so close to something watching it over and over yeah. and over and over. <laughs> and is this shot, is this dark enough? Is this light enough? Is this the right tinting scheme? Is it too saturated, et cetera, et cetera, um, that you get lost in the quality of the film itself. And people are really, really enjoying Xander the Great. And, and it really is a, a fun film. And, and it's a tidy film, uh, well-directed by George Hill um, and uh Great supporting cast uh, in it. And for the only difference between what Kickstarter backers of Ed's Kickstarter uh, got and what I've released is that we went back to the preservation negative, which had way less nitrate decomp in it, and then did a scene by scene uh, grading and then reinstated the tints uh, digitally based on the nitrate. So it'll look a little bit better. And also it's on both Blu-ray and DVD. Beverly of Graustark um, was something that it's another one of these films that I would watch in looking for a more things to uh, put out on on home video and b to program at shows. And I remember watching Beverly of Graustark uh, while down at the Library of Congress to play for some things, and I like I had a reaction to uh, when I was in Flower. I was like, why isn't this available? Why isn't this shown more? It's so much fun. How? And there's a complete print. So uh, it was still under copyright at the time, but I started plotting with, together with Rob Stone. Okay, what's coming down the pike? Let's look at this. How far? And we tried back timing it so that, you know, the scan could be ready so that on Jan, you know, Ed and I, you know, we take turns. Okay, uh, 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 this title goes PD on January 1st. You going to Kickstarter or am I going to do this one? And so we'll take turns on things. And, and one of the things that happened is that I'm you know, Rob and I are sitting in his office and going through uh, the database and seeing what the different elements are on Beverly of Grouse Star. Oh, let's see what we have. Okay. Uh, there's this element and that element and this, this, you know, the uh, preservation negative, et cetera. And he goes, Oh, wait a second. And said, there's one item that said, uh, it's a single can, uh, 400 feet. It just, and the only note is it says might be color. What? So call, uh, Rob calls down to, uh, I forget it was, uh, Larry Smith or George Willman down in the nitrate falls, gives them the catalog number. Could you go pull this and see what this is? And it turns out it was the film's original two color technicolor ending. Oh, I didn't know that existed. And maybe there are people listening and like, I knew about that. And maybe somewhere <laughs> James Cazart is like, I knew about this, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it got sent up for, you know, uh, you know, uh, 4k, uh, scanning and, uh, dissolve a few months, several months later, uh, the, the entire film got scanned, graded, and it, it, it was shown in Portononi in October of 2019. And so, uh, like I said, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, and this is sort of like a, you know, 
like a contemporary tagline. If you liked her in the Patsy and show right. people, you'll love <laughs> Beverly of Graustark. And what's great about it is that she, uh, it's one of these uh, stories where uh, somebody from regular life has to switch places with someone in royalty. And the difference here is that uh, it's Marion Davies passing as uh, a prince uh, who's played by uh, Creighton Hale. And uh, it's it's great. What's wacky, of course, is if you it, it isn't until you see the, the switch happen that you realize, oh, you know, she with her hair pulled back, she does kind of look like Creighton Hale. <laughs> and so it's easy for people to mistake her for. It's got Roy Darcy as, uh, you know, uh, if you can't get Stroheim to wear to be in your picture, wear a monocle, twirl his mustache and sneer. You get Roy Darcy. Uh, and Antonio Moreno is in it and he's great. And just, it's really well directed by the great Sidney Franklin. And it's a tight short, you know, it's a tight eight reels. It's like 77 minutes. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but I, you know, that was one of the things I liked about Xander. I mean, it just, it's breezy, which to me is, you know, one of the best, uh, words you can use for a silent genre picture Yeah, is don't take yourself too seriously and don't run too long. You know, just yeah. be fun while you're here. And yeah. Yeah. And some of the other her earlier pictures that were, that did run longer. And I think a lot of it is just, uh, you know, it's conflation from fans. It's it, people. Oh, it's two hours. This was two hours and she's wearing costumes and it was actually seen the films and even, even things like little old New York are, are they move along and they're they're entertaining and they're fun, but it's at this point that you know her films are you know seventy five seventy eight minutes they bang they just bang right along and there's but like I said, Beverly of Graustark is um, it's just it's a it's the first one that's just an out and out comedy and she's wonderful in it. All right, so these were Kickstarters, but we're past all that. Uh, I know that uh, Xander is available now at Undercrank Productions, and Beverly will be what next April twelfth. April twelfth. April twelfth okay. on all the, all the usual uh, online retailers, except well, you know, the TCM shop shuttered a couple of weeks ago, but all the other places, uh, Critics Choice, Deep Discount, Amazon, Movies Unlimited, uh, and maybe someday Merch Tables. Remember those? <laughs> oh yeah. All right, and then you've got other things down the road. You you sort of hinted at some different things. Do you want to talk yes. about any of those? Yeah, just just briefly, because uh, in some cases you'll probably want to have uh, yeah we could people talk involved more. on. Uh, so uh, there are two releases I'm working on that John Marsalis actually has produced and scored for video. Um, one is a second volume of early Lon Chaney material, and that'll be a two disc set. And there are a couple of features that he had scored uh, for Cinecon Online uh, that were from his show at home prints that went over very well and got great reaction. And so those will come out at some point later in the year as a fifth volume of Accidentally Preserved, since these films basically only survive in 16 millimeter uh, show at homes. Uh, it'll be two. And then uh, there's Andrew Simpson's project of back pay. And the Valley of Silent Men, which he kickstarted last year, and he's getting ready to do some scoring work on that. And these are two films uh, from the early 20s, directed by Frank Berzaghi. And Back Pay was also written by Francis Marion. And once again, 
These are both cosmopolitan productions. And thank you, Marion Davies, for hanging on to prints of these or they would not survive. And so we have those. And I'm also uh, we're working. Uh, and I say when I say we, I mean myself and Crystal Cutty and the rest of the, the gang uh, are working with Kathy Fuller Seely, uh, who teaches at UT Austin on uh, on a restoration of The Craving from 1918 and a few other shorts. Uh, and but the other thing that I'm also very excited about uh, is the work uh, in progress on Tom Mix, um, Beverly of Graustark, as well as two Tom Mix pictures uh, have been licensed to Turner Classic Movies by uh, Undercrank, and so those I don't know when they'll air, but Tom Mix's films have been uh, sorely overlooked by uh, home video. Yeah, very uh, hard to see for someone it's really of such hard fame. To, yeah. Right. This is the thing. Uh, again, uh, Rob Stone and I are going through lists of films that are, A, in the public domain, and B, do not have donor restrictions. And uh, I see a couple of Tom Mix films. I see one called Sky High, and that's always been rentable in 16 from MoMA. Right. And, it, and, you know, Alpha has it, and everybody's had that out. And I, and I, I start poking around online, and I realize this has never been out on DVD. And I realize, oh, this is a National Film Registry title from the late, I think, the late 90s. I thought, I just, you know, you start, you go down a little rabbit hole and I realize, my gosh, Tom Mix, once he moves into feature films, he's he makes over 80 feature films from like 1918, 1919 to the end of the silent film era. And like most of them are gone. Some of them survive incomplete at foreign archives, and there's two <laughs> at the Library of Congress, Sky High and a film called The Big Diamond Robbery, which is his last silent film made for FBO. And if you read Wikipedia and other things online, you'll read, oh, you know, uh, Tom wasn't so happy with the films for FBO because they didn't have the kind of budgets that he had at Fox. But Rob Stone and I sat there and we watched The Big Diamond Robbery and it's entertaining and it's well-made and it's good. Um, there are some nitrate decomposition in some of the reels on the edges. It's not like, you know, Dawson City stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not something, I, I, oh, here's something I'll send to Bill Morrison. Um, but, you know, it's still watchable. And there is another print that's turned up that we're looking to access uh, as a way to fill those sequences out. But it's fun. You know, when, you know, in that sequence in Steamboat Bill Jr. when Buster Keaton's trying on all the hats of movie stars, you know, he puts on a giant white cowboy hat and nobody has any idea what the hell that <laughs> is. It's Tom Mix. He was uh, an omnipresent. I mean, he was turning out four, five, six features a year. Right. They're all like six reels. So the theater owners love him. Oh, great. A feature that I can show six times a day and I don't have to cut one of my shows because it's an eight reel picture. Uh, people love the Westerns people, you know, uh, he's like Doug Fairbanks on a horse to me. Uh, you know, I played for two films of, of Tom Mix's at the TCM festival and they, they, they filled the Legion 43 theater and it just went over so great. Um, so that's the other project is to, to, uh, uh, scan, score and ideally restore sky high and the big diamond robbery just to remind people that Tom Mix was not a character from a radio show with a decoder ring and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, people have heard of Tom Mix. They've never seen his films. 
and the features that are available through uh, Alpha and I'm guessing also Grapevine are films that were m- released in the late teens that were compilations of his Kalem One release. Like people oh. <laughs> would take five or six of them and weave them together with re- new titles and created a feature out of it. The way, you know, uh, you know, there's that, uh, I think it's a feature called Chase Me, Chase Chase Me, Me Charlie. Charlie. Sure. You know, it's a bunch of SNAs cobbled together into a feature so somebody could try to make money. And so that's what circulated. So even though you could call them features, they weren't made as features. And it's all stuff from the mid-teens. But... Um, his stunting, and even in 1929, you know, he's still doing a lot of his own stunts, leaping from, you know, a, a fire escape to the ground and onto horses and all, all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, uh, for somebody who had started in the circus and then when sound came in, returns to the circus for a little bit, um, you know, you get you'll get to see uh, what a what, what a big deal Tom Mix actually was. I noticed that the the Raymond Griffith Kickstarter has gone up to 432 since I've been sitting here. So wow, well, just just recording this episode has inspired somebody unwittingly <laughs> to pledge to the project. Well, this is how the Kickstarters always go. There's a big blast at the beginning, then it levels off, and it trickle, 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 and then the last couple of days, you know, there's a push, and Bob Lipton and some other people go on Nitrate Drill. Hey, there's only a, you know 12 hours left, and that that always helps. And then invariably, uh, when I release something, they're like, oh, I missed that. How did I miss <laughs> right. that case? So you do what you can, but uh, it, it'll, be, it'll be fine. It'll happen. And I'm, I'm just uh, honored by the support of fans of Raymond Griffiths and of silent film who have no idea who Raymond Griffith is, but uh, believe in the work that, that uh, I and Crystal and Steve and Marlene and uh, Chris Krause and everybody who's going to be working on this are doing on all of our all of these projects uh, to to bring some of these people uh, who are not part of the the, the canon uh, the the Silent Years Joe Franklin book uh, <laughs> canon uh, back to screens because there's there's an audience who we've all bought the general a few times now and we want to see what else uh, was on screens in the 1920s. That was music by Ben Modell from his 2021 release of eight short films starring Edward Everett Horton. Ben's Kickstarter for two Raymond Griffiths films runs through April 2nd. Other things we talked about are, or will soon be, available through his Undercrank Productions. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Flash! Director of Media History Digital Library puts own resource to use. Last year I spoke with Eric Hoyt, director of the Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, about the Media History Digital Library, which offers millions of pages of movie magazines free to use online. Now he's used it himself to write his book Ink Stained Hollywood, The Triumph of American Cinema's Trade Press from University of California Press. He examines the history of the trade publications that reported on and shaped Hollywood, 
ones you know like Variety, and many others you've never heard of, which nevertheless had influence as Hollywood grew financially and culturally in the silent and early sound years, and served as a power base outside the studios for their publishers and editors. I spoke with Eric Hoyt from Madison. I thought it was really funny that, you know, obviously you have a connection to the subject matter through the Media History Digital Library, but also that you you had the quintessential what makes Sammy run entry-level position at one point. That's right. I uh, My first job out of college was working in a Hollywood talent agency mailroom. Um, and I, I did that job back in 2005, and I went to work every morning in Beverly Hills, showed up at, at 7 a.m. wearing a, a very baggy hand-me-down suit, <laughs> like, you know, the, the thing that was like in, in peak style in like 1993, and I had inherited that. Right. Um, and I got there before the, the agents got to the office and loaded up my the, my mail cart and pushed it around. And I was handing out, you know, inner office memos. But the, the big part of that early morning run was delivering the trades. Uh, every talent agent had a subscription to uh, Daily Variety um, and Hollywood Reporter. And so I'd go around and put those on the desks um, and then go back to the mailroom and uh, start to do other gopher-type errands. Um, uh, and I started to read the trades. I didn't have time in the morning, but um, the, the agency would clear out for lunch, right? Like that's when everyone's sure. going off to wheel and deal and have their lunch meetings. And so by that point, I'd say half of those uh, issues I delivered in the morning were in the recycling bins. So I could just grab one and, and read through it. And I learned a lot about the industry at that time. And I knew I was supposed to, like this was part of right. being in the mailroom and being in this agent training program, like learning the who's who and, and how people fit in and, and what deals are being announced. Um, but I also learned how to read them critically. And I mean, some of that was having, you know, had the opportunity to, to go to college and develop critical thinking skills. But a lot of it was also informed by observing the way talent agents read the trades and talked about them and the way that they themselves would read the trades critically interpret, you know, certain pieces as just being, you know, puff and a kind of like pathetic PR stunt. Uh, but then also how those, some of those same agents put, you know, tremendous stock into things like the rankings, you know, of um, the top 35, under 35, for instance, right. <laughs> uh, and who's on the list and who's not. Um, and so it, these experiences just gave me an appreciation for um, how the, the trade papers play a variety of functions within the industry that, yes, they announce news, um, but they also um, have these, these other meanings. They, they have this kind of scorekeeping function. Um, they, uh, the people who read them know that they can't take everything at face value, um, but they also don't just completely dismiss them. In fact, they care a lot about how they're being covered. 
Now, it's interesting. I mean, those two publications that you say everyone's reading were like 70 years old at that point. I mean, Variety, of course, was much older, but Daily Variety, the the Daily spinoff, was dated to about the arrival of sound. Let's talk about the whole concept of trade papers. I mean, there had been a certain amount of ballyhoo before the 20th century, but trade papers, trade journals as a business... You know, as as having some kind of science behind how they operated, uh, really begins in the early 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for for bringing that up, Mike. Um, I mean, one of the things that I found early on in, in my research were that there were these kind of competing strands within uh, the entertainment trade press um, between kind of like a, a trade paper that was just kind of imagined itself as utterly show business. But then in the early 20th century, like, like you were saying, um, there's this broad movement that goes well beyond entertainment and the motion picture industry to really formalize the practices of industrial journalism, as it was calling itself. Um, and so you know, the, the leader in this movement was the dry goods economist. Um, so not something in show business, right? Uh, something even more thrilling, dry goods. Yes, um, <laughs> right. They were seen as uh, the the real model for how you run a professional trade paper, how you can you know give really good coverage throughout the country and even have international um, news and, and information in there. Um, the most current prices, having special sections that provide a service to the industry to readers, informing people how they could you know, purchase supplies, for instance, for their store. Uh, and the, the editor was a real thought leader and seen as a leader in the industry at large. And so um, the, the editor-publisher of The Dry Goods Economist uh, and other trade papers and industries like uh, Iron um, and, and right. Steel, um, <laughs> they were uh, really advocating for a new set of professional standards that would elevate the reputation of trade publishing, and um, all of this is is happening in you know the the uh, early 1900s into the the teens, and one of the key um, uh, figures I found in my research when it came to the movie industry was William A. Johnston, who was the the publisher and editor of motion picture news starting in the mid-teens. He had experience working in journalism and advertising uh, and really understood this new framework of industrial journalism and brought that template to the movie industry and uh, arrived at the right time too, arrived at a time when the, the big early feuds with the motion picture patents company were really coming to an end, um, even before the MPPC got broken up um, uh, by the federal government and the famous antitrust case, uh, it was already on the decline because they weren't able to um, market films as, as lucratively as the independents did, who, who had a different distribution model and, um, and could make far more money um, through this new system of really investing in stories and stars and features. Uh, and these are the folks we know about today, like Adolf Zukor and his famous players, Lasky and the Paramount company. 
uh, Carl Emley with Universal. Um, so at the same moment that it's becoming more evident that that independent feature model of production and distribution companies is going to um, be the, the successful model for the motion picture industry, um, um, William A. Johnston um, takes over what had been moving picture news, uh, rebrands it motion picture news, and starts to educate the industry about how um, really what a trade paper should do, what it can be, this valuable data collection function um, that it can serve. And uh, that paper plays a key leadership role in changing people's imaginations over what about what trade papers are. And it was interesting to me finding that in my research because up to that point, um, when I would research something from the silent film era, I would usually go to uh, moving picture world first, which is also a, a fascinating trade paper. Um, but by the, the late teens and 1920s in particular, um, moving picture world is, is no longer the leader. It's really on the decline and you have um, motion picture news as the most influential trade paper during that time. Uh, and then even it gets unseated by by other players too. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I apologize to listeners for the fact that these all kind of have the same name. It's a little tough to keep track of, you know, the moving picture news versus the moving picture worlds, the motion picture, you know, whatever. But yeah, Harold, uh, yeah. no, it's. I mean, it's true though. It's uh, uh, and that, I mean that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book in a way too is that they they do all sound. Kind of, kind of the similar, same. Um, but sometimes they have these very different editorial voices, um, right. and they're also enmeshed with each other. Like their their histories and stories spill over into one another, which is part of the reason why I wanted to to write this as more of a a chronicle and, and historical study and narrative um, that looks at all of these trade papers together, rather than like you know individual encyclopedia entries, for instance. Right, yeah. I mean, as you say in the book, there have been books about some of the people who published one of them, but not this kind of, you know, comprehensive view of of the whole field. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, one of the, the big issues that they all kind of face, and Johnson is one of the ones who deals with it first, is you're trying to establish credibility, but you have to take ads from the distributors to survive. At the same time, I mean, the numbers, the circulation is in talking to exhibitors who are going to be naturally suspicious of the hype that comes from the distributors. So you have to find a way, you know, to some extent, this is the history of magazines in the 20th century in general, find a way to have you know, the cr- credibility while taking money from the people you cover and selling the magazine to other people. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those things that sometimes like we ourselves as readers and consumers in the year 2022 think, okay, we, we're, we're pretty good at doing this, but you know, back well, a long time ago, people probably just, you know, took it for face value and uh, didn't think critically about it. But, but no, I mean, uh, going back, even to the vaudeville days before movies, um, this was an issue in trade papers that um, how could the exhibitor 
So now I'm jumping from vaudeville back to movies, but, but in the case of the movie industry, how can an exhibitor who's receiving moving picture world or motion picture news or exhibitors herald um, and is looking in the review section for information uh, about uh, a particular feature coming out and, and trying to figure out if it's a good fit for his or her theater or not, how could they trust this information when just, you know, two pages away from that, you have a, a big right. advertisement promoting uh, Universal or, or, or Fox, one of these companies. Um, and then maybe if you jump a few more pages, you might find, uh, a, if, I, if you know, I'll put in quote, news story, uh, air quotes around news, because it's so clearly like a, a press release that's just been kind right. of barely rewritten and it's appearing there too. And so, uh, and that was part of the industry during this time too. I mean, there was very much a quid pro quo um, where for certain publications and especially during certain eras, you know, if you bought two pages of ads, you'd get one page of news coverage or editorial space. Right. And you can pretty quickly um, reverse engineer this. Uh, if you spend time on the Media History Digital Library going through, you know, a, a motion picture news issue from the late teens, for instance. Um, but, but getting back to this core question of like, how do, um, how do readers trust what they're getting? The, I mean, there's, there's kind of three things that come to mind. One is that the, the reputation and brand of the trade paper is important. Um, and uh, the trade paper publishers and editors tried very hard to portray themselves as independent. And I would say, you know, Variety, um, which started out much more as a, a vaudeville paper than a movie paper, um, this became one of its biggest assets was the fact that it had this reputation for independence because it had kind of never kowtowed to the big vaudeville organizations the way uh, other vaudeville papers had. And also because they, they panned more movies than the other trade papers and, and would sometimes brag about this. So, I mean, that was one thing, like the, the kind of the brand reputation of the journal itself. I mean, even with that, though, um, there's a, a limitation, right? Like an exhibitor might still feel um, like it's not totally trustworthy what they're getting. And so you get the development of exhibitor written reviews. So um, the What the Picture Did For Me section, which started in Metography in um, 1917, I believe, 1916, 1917, these were reviews written by exhibitors. Like, this is how the movie played at my theater in Nebraska uh, right. or Peoria uh, or wherever it is. Uh, and then Exhibitors Herald acquired Metography, so it became part of Exhibitors Herald and eventually became part of uh, Motion Picture Herald. And a lot of listeners uh, of this podcast have maybe gone through and looked at some of those in the past, but what the picture did for me sections, they're really fascinating. Uh, it is not representative of exhibitors across the nation, um, but it is representative of a particular subset. Catherine fuller Seely. Uh, has a terrific uh, essay that she published about the, what the picture did for me section during the 1930s, where she does like a real kind of demographic um, deep dive and sees how it's overwhelmingly these Midwestern and, and Plain States uh, exhibitors who are from towns that have less than 10,000 people. Um, 
and they're the ones who are writing in. Uh, they're the ones who are um, yeah, doing the reviews, who are reading it. And it's interesting, like you, you see certain figures, you know, an exhibitor, one exhibitor in particular from um, uh, a town in Idaho that only had a couple thousand people was a major influencer, we would say today in social media terms, because he wrote so many reviews and people really cared about what he was saying. Um, and then the, the, the third um, approach to solving this advertising conundrum was just to cut out all advertising altogether. And I remember um, last time I was on the podcast, we talked briefly about Harrison's reports. Um, and that's the most famous and long running and successful trade paper slash kind of newsletter that takes this approach. We're on the, the um, top of every issue of Harrison's reports. It says free from the influence of advertising. And so exhibitors would pay um, a much higher subscription price for uh, Harrison's reports. If I'm remembering right, you know, in the, the 1930s, um, like 20s and 30s, I think it was $10 um, a year for Harrison's reports, whereas it was only one or $2 for uh, a year's worth of motion picture news or uh, Exhibitors Herald precisely because those were subsidized so much by the advertising and, and Harrison's reports wasn't, but exhibitors felt like they could really trust what P.S. Harrison um, writing his newsletter out of Philadelphia was, was saying. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's certain publications that like to stress, you know, how fully they covered the scene and then others stressed how concise they were that they, mm -hmm. you know, they just nar narrowed it down to what was really useful to you. You know, the most obvious one being exhibitor reviews from people who were presumed to be like you and, you know, knew, knew how to sell to an audience like yours. Um, and, you know, the, they might only be four pages long or something, but, it, you know, it was all gold, so you were willing to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a great point, that there's these different information management problems that, that come up within the industry and entrepreneurial trade paper publishers try to address it in different ways. I mean, we're just talking about this uh, question, problem, challenge of how can I trust the film reviews I'm reading this other problem of like, I'm overwhelmed and busy. I don't have a ton of time. Well, maybe you should subscribe to the film daily. Um, you know, which started out as, as WIDS daily and became film daily. Uh, and that's a great example of one of these papers. It's only four pages or eight pages. The, the news coverage tends to be more superficial, we, we might say, than um, some of the more kind of like in-depth market studies that you might find in um, motion picture news. But that's okay. Like, you know, people are, like you were saying, they're, they're reading through it to see um, the latest about what's being announced for production, other industry issues, like give me the information quickly. Uh, and then also another information problem that comes up is like, how do I retrieve, um, you know, data I need about something that happened five months ago or two years ago. And this is where the, the film daily yearbook and also, also the, um, 
Motion um, Picture Herald's Almanac, um, those become important sources. I, I kind of think of those yearbooks, and, and Motion Picture News had an early one also, um, as being kind of like our the, the pre-internet databases right. for the film industry, where you could go back through and look up uh, movies or, or personnel um, or various other market statistics. Now, one of your chapters is about the teens period where a number of different publications, a few of which you know we still know the names of, uh, had come into being, and then they all started suing each other. You know, you called <laughs> the, the trade paper yeah. war. Um, what was the point of all that? Why Why did they all want to go to court, and what did they benefit from it? Yeah, yeah, um, a good question. Yeah, so so the the second book chapter um, looks at just as you were saying this period where. The trade papers are, are suing each other, mostly under libel law. Um, and the, I mean, the lead up to this was William A. Johnston, who I was mentioning before, who comes along as the the new editor and publisher of Motion Picture News uh, and makes some enemies in the process. Um, he, uh, among other enemies he cultivates, um, gets on the wrong side of uh, Stephen Bush, who was the the longtime uh, editor of Motion, uh, or excuse me, of Moving Picture World, not the the, the publisher. So he, he Bush didn't have ownership in Moving Picture World. The Chalmers Company controlled that. Um, but Bush was his, its editor. He had built a lot of goodwill in the exhibitors community, and a lot of exhibitors felt like they could trust Bush. Um, and then also a, an exhibitor. Um, named Lee Oaks um, became uh, a, a real combative presence within exhibitor organizations in the industry uh, and also the life and career of William A. Johnston. So um, there's a moment in 1916 uh, and then 1917 when Lee Oaks and um, Stephen Bush uh, join forces. Bush leaves a uh, moving picture world, and they create a new trade paper called Exhibitors Trade Review, which has a pretty bland name, right? <laughs> kind right. of like all of these ones we're talking about. Um, but it was incendiary, um, and it was incendiary because it came on the scene, uh, announced itself as something exhibitors should all definitely subscribe to. Um, Oaks was the head of an exhibitor organization during this time. And there was already concern that, that Oaks, who was based in Brooklyn, New York, um, uh, and owned theaters there, was already using his position within this exhibitor organization in a self-dealing kind of way, you know, right. using the leverage from the organization to give himself better deals and, and kind of try to push out his local competitors in Brooklyn. Uh, and then those fears and anxieties took off even more once um, he created this trade paper, um, Exhibitors Trade Review. And um, one of the ways that the, uh, that Exhibitors Trade Review tried to build up its own credibility and, and, and sense of independence was attacking William A. Johnston. And so they wrote um, some really defamatory editorials about Johnston, who was the motion picture news editor, um, calling him out, insulting him, 
Uh, and um, at that point, Johnston sued Exhibitors Trade Review for libel. Um, and it was the, a kind of case where, in some ways, Exhibitors Trade Review almost welcomed the libel suit because it um, it made them look like they were tough. Um, right. Uh, at this same time, there's um, another really interesting development that, that plays out. And, it, and this turned out to be far more damaging to Exhibitors Trade Review than um, the, the dispute with William A. Johnston. Uh, but um, it came to light that they were using, I say they, Oaks and, and Bush running Exhibitors Trade Review, basically running like extortion type tactics on the studios. Like, you know, if you don't pay us and buy advertising, we will do you harm. Yeah. Um, and uh, Universal refused and Oak circulated um, an old op-ed that Carl Lemley had written uh, that had sent, that was taken out of context as something that was insulting exhibitors. Uh, and so that became a very public scandal for exhibitors trade review as well. Um, I mean, part of the reason I'll, I'll also be totally honest here on the podcast. Part, I mean, I guess there's two reasons I also like to write about these lawsuits. One is that they're dramatic, right? Like someone sues someone else. There's some conflict there. Sure. Uh, and then the second reason is like I have evidence for them. Right. Like, they leave a know, trail. Sues, yeah. Right. Exactly. It leaves that trail of primary sources, and I'm able to go back and find those uh, lawsuits. Uh, which include libel lawsuits, contract disputes, um, a tax case in the case of Hollywood Reporter. So those those were really um, valuable primary sources because you can learn a lot by reading the trade papers themselves, but there's a lot that they don't say about themselves <laughs> just within um, the you know the magazines. And this is where trying to find those other primary sources that can shed light on the, the publishing and editorial practices was really important. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, I mean, what we really see here is a lot of people were using being media figures within the film industry, the nascent film industry, as a way of becoming someone with influence over it, power within it, who wasn't a studio head. I mean, obviously, if you're yeah. making a lot of money and running a studio, you're important. But, uh, you know, you see, and particularly a lot of them start using the idea of improving the pictures, making them cleaner, you know, things like that uh, as as a power base. You know, Peter Harrison is very big on, you know, Harrison's reports is very big on, you know, the pictures should be more wholesome. Um and you know the the one who basically plays this game and wins to a certain extent ultimately is Martin Quigley. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, I'm sorry, which, which was his publication? I'm, I'm oh, he he had yeah no this this is good for listeners too. So yeah, Quigley started out as the editor and publisher of Exhibitors Herald, which was based in Chicago, uh, and then became the the publisher of Motion Picture Herald. Um, should we talk about quickly? Yeah. I mean, cause he is yeah, really yeah. an important figure ultimately. Yeah, he, he really is. And for multiple reasons, um, 
uh, reasons relating to the trade papers themselves, but also, you know, this just immediately comes to mind what you're talking about trying to, uh, in terms of the content of movies and trying to change the content, um, make them more moral and wholesome. Quigley was a, a key figure in the drafting of the production code. Right. Um, working on it with Father Daniel Lord, Jesuit priest, in late 1929 and bringing it to the um, the studio's committee um, uh, out in L.A. that was part of the MPPDA, uh, getting it um, and getting it adopted. So without Quigley's involvement, the code would not have developed the way it had, and particularly not in the way that, that Quigley was ultimately most proud of, which was the fact that the production code did not simply tell producers what not to do. I mean, it did that too, but, right. but in Quigley's view, the big accomplishment was, was putting um, a sense of moral purpose at the center of it, like a, an articulation that entertainment should um, maintain um, or improve the, the really the morality of viewers. Um, uh, so Quigley plays, you know, by the time he's he's helping to author and implement the code, he's gained a great deal of influence, right? Like, um, and and how did he do that? And what I found in my research was that he was very skillful at um, being a mediator within the industry, um, particularly during the 1920s, um, and he made at least initially made independent exhibitors feel like uh, they could really trust him, you know, and they were reading his paper and writing into it for that uh, what the picture did for me section that we were just talking about. He was based in Chicago um, and liked to talk about that too. You know, he's not in New York with all of those, you know, shady show business, New York types. He's, right. <laughs> you know, a, a Midwestern man. Here in Chicago, you can you can trust him. Um, a good Catholic, uh, but yes, yes, and a very good Catholic, and that turned out to be great training. I mean, he he his education was completely within Catholic schools and Catholic institutions, right up to the moment where, according to his son, um, in, in a book that he wrote, uh, quickly starting to train to become a priest, and then ultimately decided not to go that direction. But he he understood not just the religious side of Catholicism, but also the way that power flowed um, and that kind of knowledge of, of how to turn those levers of power and, and be part of it um, was, was a huge advantage. Um, toward the, the late twenties, Quigley um, was able to do something that, I mean, William A. Johnston had really dreamed of doing with motion picture news back in the, the mid teens. And that is, consolidate the trade papers. Um, so one of the, the kind of themes or motifs that comes up throughout the book, I mean, it's kind of one of the things that brought me to this project too. It's like, whoa, there's a lot of these trade papers covering one industry. Like, how can you, how can you have so many of these covering a one American industry that's not even like the biggest American industry by any means? And it turns out that people at that time and the, the teens and twenties were asking themselves the same question. And, and in fact, looking at it as an industry problem. 
And so um, Quigley um, works toward a consolidation plan, um, tells the studios, this is in your interest, and it's in your interest because you can trust me. I'm responsible in what I do. Um, it's going to you know, save you money because you're not having to buy advertising in so many different publications. And the, the, the promise or the, the hope is that it would actually enable the creation of, a, of an even better trade paper. Because if you can concentrate resources in one title, then that um, you know, would let them hire more people and, and develop more sections. Um, it's also a monopoly. And so that, that, that was the goal. Like how do, um, uh, for Quigley, how do I create a monopoly uh, among uh, a monopoly of trade paper publishing right. where, where I'm the king and he came very close to it. Um, so in 1927, um, Quigley's exhibitors Herald buys out moving picture world, which was in a much weaker position by that point. Um, and then in uh, 1930, after he's, helped to, to draft the production code and get it uh, at least adopted in name among the producers, even though I'm sure listeners to this podcast, many know that the production code administration was not forcefully um, um, administered and enforced until mid-1934. Right. Um, but in 1930, so that same year, after the, the production code was, was drafted and, and um, accepted, and, uh, at least in word by the, the producers, um, what Quigley was able to, to pull off, and it was quite a coup, was um, go to the different studio heads and get them to agree to sign contracts that they would um, purchase $100,000 of advertising per year in his publications and then he used those contracts to borrow money from a bank to buy out um, Motion Picture News and um, also buy out the what remained of Exhibitor's Trade Review at that point. Um, and so it, it really looks like he had it all sewn up. I mean, it was also the Great Depression. Like it just it, it seemed like it, it would have made perfect sense at that point for the studios to only buy their ads in Motion Picture Herald, um, save money, you know, and, and Quigley would be the only game in town. Um, uh, and the, the final chapter of my book explores why that didn't happen, like why, why this plan failed. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's obvious why it's good for Quigley. You know, to some extent, it's good for the studios if they only have to buy one ad. It's hard to see, though, why anybody else benefits from reducing the number of viewpoints out there to one publication under one, you know, fairly, uh, you know, guy. I mean, he wasn't a neutral owner. He had very clear Catholic opinions. And you might just want other opinions out there. You know, why did it, Why did anybody else want this <laughs> besides Quigley? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, yeah, when especially out on the coast, as they would have said, or the movie colony, to use the, the, the terms of the time, um, out in L.A. Like, you have a production community out there who wants something really different than what the New York executives want, than what the, you know, the Ohio 
exhibitor once. Um, and these were some of the, the, the trade papers that I had the most fun researching and studying were the, the trade papers that developed in Los Angeles uh, in the 1920s, especially. They really tried to speak to that creative and production community uh, and speak to, to them about things that mattered to them. Yeah, no, I, I liked, uh, I mean, you talk about film mer- mercury, which you call an avant-garde trade. And I mean, it's, the name is an obvious uh, nod to H.L. Mencken's American Mercury mm-hmm. in literature. Then you also talk about film spectator, which was basically for the creatives against the suits, as we'd say now. I mean, it was it was very much about the people making movies and, you know, not the producers who sort of regarded as dolts. So, you know... It, other other point of views for sure oh yeah yeah um and i'm glad you brought those up yeah those were two of the most fascinating trade papers i found doing my research and you can find um sample volumes of them up at the the media history digital library website um and film spectator in particular you you summed that up great (laughs) the uh against the suits for for the uh the creatives and artists that's exactly the um the stance it takes you know it starts out as as more of kind of like a craft oriented work of film criticism uh but then it's it's editor welford beaton takes that approach um uh at a critical moment um in 1927 when the studios are trying to to cut production costs and slash budgets and they're doing this by saying well all you stars and directors and writers we're going to cut your salaries um, and Beaton calls them out. Um, and, you know, in each issue that's coming out every two weeks is finding new ways to um, diss their hypocrisy um, and talk about why they don't understand anything and why the creatives are the ones who are right. And it becomes hugely popular. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a contrast to um, the approach that Quigley's LA publication takes. So, so Martin Quigley starts his own publication called the Hollywood Herald. So there's motion picture Herald and this is the Hollywood Herald. Right. Um, but it's, it's perceived as just totally a, a corporate mouthpiece. And it's, um, it's against unionization, uh, against um, pushback to the, the studio cuts that are happening in 1933. So, um, if you've seen, uh, the, the David Fincher movie, Mank, you might right. remember there's a scene <laughs> where, I mean, it's a right a fictional portrayal, but of something that did happen where in this case, Louis B. Mayer, but the other studio executives were doing different versions of this too, said that because of the bank holiday of early 1933, they're going to have to cut salaries by 50%. And, some people didn't really believe them then. And then people especially didn't believe them once in like Warner's case, famously, they said, well, we, we think these are the right salary levels just to, to keep with. Um, so th- this is how it's going to be. Yeah. And the, the Hollywood Herald, um, you know, chided anyone for stepping out of line and daring to question why <laughs> these um, corporations would cut their salaries in half, but, um, Hollywood reporter, um, which uh, was created in 1930, uh, takes a different approach. Hollywood reporter, um, is very much on the side of creatives at that moment in 1933, 
uh, and saying, like, calling out the studio bosses in New York, the, the corporate executives who manage distribution executives, uh, they manage yeah, distribution and the exhibition chains, those execs as being out of touch and not being the true center of the industry. And that helps Hollywood Reporter at that moment build up circulation. And it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of ironic um, in light of the fact that Hollywood Reporter and its publisher editor, um, W.R. Wilkerson, um, were such a, a prominent mouthpiece um, during the, the blacklist right after World War II, um, calling out members of the industry as communists and, and ruining careers um, in a very aggressive style. Yeah. Um, but at in 1933, um, it was perceived as uh, a, a paper that, that took the side of the creative labor in Hollywood. Now, you end your history there in the mid-30s, and it kind of seems like, I mean, Quigley won by creating the production code, but his influence kind of wanes a bit. Hollywood Reporter, which, as you say, comes along you know, very late in the day, and Variety wind up being the dominant ones. Variety is interesting because it always kind of existed a little bit outside of Hollywood because it came out of covering vaudeville and things like that, you know, and still covered other, Mm -hmm. other parts of the entertainment complex. Um, But do you feel like the era of struggle sort of ended then? And, you know, the media was fairly settled for the next, you know, all the way to that time that you were delivering those papers around the office. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 things are never totally settled. Sure. And if someone is keen to, to write um, a book about trade papers that picks up like in the year 1936, like right around where I end, I would love that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first person to buy that book. I think there's, um, there's great hi- histories and texture there that, that's waiting to be um, all kinds of things waiting to be excavated and told. Um, but for, for me, I, I wanted to, to end it there because you do get, you do get a certain stability, um, at least in the trade papers that keep going. Like there's, there's lots of turnover during the period that I'm looking at, but then, um, you get, uh, a cluster of publications, daily variety, as you were mentioning, and Hollywood Reporter um, being the leading ones in LA. But among exhibitors, you have Motion Picture Herald, you have um, Independent Exhibitors Bulletin, you have Showman's Trade Review, uh, and you have Box Office, which starts as a series of regional publications um, and grows to being even more widely read than Motion Picture Herald by the 1940s. And so those, and oh, and Harrison's reports, I mean, he keeps it, uh, that newsletter going until the early 1960s. Yeah. And so the, the papers that um, had basically made it through the early depression years, or in some cases started during those early depression years, um, they really keep going um, up through the 1960s largely. And so there's, there's stability in terms of them being um, publications that are working in the industry. I mean, I'm sh- I, I know just from like some right loose research I've done that there's interesting developments and changes that happen. And, you know, World War II 
is such a, an important period for the movie industry and the trade papers um, play interesting roles in that too. But there, there is that um, stability. And uh, I, I end the book just trying to call attention to the fact that this is, this is something special that um, it looked right. Like for a little while, at least, like the movie industry's trade press was going to go the same way that the dry goods industry's trade press went <laughs> and the iron industries and where you were going to get um, just one dominant trade paper that had, you know, a much more kind of restricted field of, of vision uh, in terms of what it was going to report on and, and, the perspectives it was going to take. Um, and instead you get um, a whole bunch of different trade papers and they have different points of view. And in the case of variety, um, you know, that's a paper that uses language in such a, an innovative and a playful inventive way. And so like to my mind, I think that um, when we, we think about the, uh, the Hollywood studio system and, and classic Hollywood, we should think of these trade papers as being some of the greatest productions. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, like right up there with um, 42nd street and, uh, and top hat and some of the, the same movies I, I love from that period that these, these trade papers are some of these really great productions. And just like the movies themselves, like we should look at them uh, critically, and there's a lot that we can study, but I, I, I see it as this real triumph, and that's part of the title, that, um, that after all of this struggle, there wound up being a, a far more heterogeneous and creative and expressive um, press covering the movies than, than we might otherwise have imagined. Ink-Stained Hollywood, The Triumph of American Cinema's Trade Press, from University of California Press, is available now as a paperback and as a free download. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Ben Modell and Eric Hoyt. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. It can all be summed up in the word that's being used now, content.